fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. And I'm David Merrill. And we're here today with another fun episode. And this has been a dream of mine since David and I started this podcast about a year ago. Probably some of you know that when you do podcasting or you have any kind of show, you have dream guests that you'd love to bring on. And today I have one of those guests that is in the top two on my list. So really excited about today. Um, I'm going to do my best to get him introduced. It's probably not going to be up to snuff, but I'm going to do my best. But our guest today, he really doesn't need an introduction. He's a well-known fisherman, guide, TV host, lure designer, and big fish catcher. Um, Big fish catcher. Well, Patrick, that sounds like a guy we need to talk to. (laughs) Exactly. So during his television career, he traveled countless miles, fished in 87 countries around the globe. During that time, he fished all the major ocean or all the oceans, all the major river systems. He's known around the world as the best big fish angler of all time. And I would definitely agree with that statement. During his fishing career, he's received a number of accolades. And some of those are the IGFA Hall of Fame, which is huge. Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. He's received the IGFA Conservation Award and many, many others. One of the things that's also really cool about this guy is that he's developed a number of different innovations for the fishing industry that have shaped fishing as we know it today. Um, We know a guy that's been doing that, haven't we? Yeah. And so Flashaboo being one of the things, um, my favorite topwater lure of all time, hands down, the Whopper Plopper, uh, the Wide Glide, Diver Frog, Clack and Crawfish, and Mr. Wiggly. So Larry Dahlberg, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. I remember being a little kid, and I would flip on the television. We only had three channels, you know, back in the day. And I could flip on the TV on Saturdays and watch Hunt for Big Fish with Larry Dahlberg. And I will forever be grateful for the inspiration that you gave me watching that show. It was just incredible to watch. And then I wanted to say this on air because we have a listener, one of my really good friends, Seth Ewing. He lives up in Idaho. He wanted me to pass along that he's very thankful for the fly fishing video that you recorded. He had a VHS tape of it that you did with In Fisherman. And now he ties flies and is a really avid fly fisherman. So he wanted me to tell you, thank you. Well, that's very kind of him. I'm happy yeah. It was a positive influence. Well, Larry, I'm, the other way. I'm a little bit of a, a closet fisherman. Patrick is no by no means <laughs> closet. He's he's full blown. But my dad took me to Alaska when I was a early teenager, and we spent from January till June tying flies. And Flashaboo was in a big majority of those flies we tied <laughs> for salmon. And you take a 12 year old boy and put him at a fly tying bench and say, hey, we're gonna go to Alaska and fish with. With these flies you tied, so I appreciate the flash, Abu. Yeah, cool. Well, there's a kind of an organic connection. When you build what it is, you catch them on. Yep. It makes a big difference. And you, and, and like I said, the Whopper Plopper is just my favorite all-time topwater lure. When I talked to you a little bit about it the other day, it's just incredible lure designs but i really want to kind of dive into what got you started because i mean you've you've been doing this a long time and i i think it's always fun to share stories you know some of the best things that you can do are share people's stories and talk about their background and where where they got their start and i've i've read 
quite a bit online on this, but I'd love for you to tell everybody just kind of how you got started fishing, where you grew up, and and how you really got into it. Well, I grew up in a little town of population, 931. Burnett County, Wisconsin, it was the biggest town in the county. Towns are maybe 20 miles apart. And uh, pretty much everybody hunted and fished and so on as a means of finding something to eat. And uh, anyhow, I, I guess after World War II, when my dad came home from the war, he got together with an uncle of mine on my uh, mom's side. And uh, this uncle had been recruited as a kind of a camp boy and guide for a fly fishing camp. And he knew the river because my grandpa was a woods animal that uh, fished with worms and mostly targeted sturgeon. He had uh, like 10 kids. And anyway, my dad got into into uh, fishing walleyes and smallmouth, uh, doing fly fishing a lot of the time, and tide flies and, and so on. And um, I guess by the time I was about, I was four when he first took me uh, fly fishing for sunfish in the springtime. And I'd stand in the water up to my waist and he'd uh, converted an old ice fishing stick uh, that was too long to be an ice fishing stick into a fly rod. That's what I used. And also took, I remember, my first fish I remember was ice fishing. I dropped a bobber and a minnow and a bobber down. It was an orange bobber. I can remember him making it in the basement. He'd make them out of balsa wood and then weighed them. So they were like almost neutrally buoyant. And then I set this uh, the rubber binder kind of off to the side so they'd just be barely tipped. And so if a fish bit, they'd maybe tip down and it might even tip up. Anyway, I used to carve this stuff in the basement. And my first fish, I remember going down it pulled it up. I was very excited and my dad was hollering about something and this crappie came up and I had been putting a line on top of the stove with a, you know, that's how you heat up the ice fishing house. And so I'd ruined all the line because, you know, burned up in the stove. But I still remember that crappie, even though it smelled like And from a little kid, I was just hooked. Any moment I had, I fished. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I can totally relate. I think a lot of us started either on little trout and streams or sunfish or perch or something like that. So, Larry, my yeah, yeah. it wasn't my first fish, but I can remember my first solo fishing trip. I was old enough to ride a bicycle, and we had a, a canal maybe two houses so away from our house. And the neighbor, I was, yeah, five, five or six years old, rode my bike with a, I, I had got a cane fishing pole, you know, no reel, yep, just line. Yep. It had one eye on the end of it, and the line was tied around the handle. I went and caught a, a bluegill. <laughs> the funny part of the story is I was so proud of this bluegill. I got a mason jar out of the kitchen. I put the bluegill in the mason <laughs> jar and then I put it on a shelf in my room. My mom found that about two weeks later. It was not pleased with me. <laughs> yeah, tell my uncle Skinny used to gather his catfish bait. That's just how he did it, too. <laughs> well, it, it, it would have made hey, good catfish bait. Sometimes they blow bait. up. Yeah, they blow up sometimes. He had them blow up one time in the kitchen. He got in trouble with Aunt Blondie. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different story oh, yeah man. as a as a kid you know getting back to that that's interesting i lived one block uphill from a small river that ran through town that uh, they had a little dam on a little overshot that made a reservoir and uh before i could go with my dad who fished on a river uh, i had to be able to cast this had a Fluger scale cast, remember those? Non-free spool, kind of a mid-price, low-price uh, Fluger. 54-pound line, rubber lure with no hooks on it. And before I was allowed to go with him on the river, I had to be able to cast it under the swing set into a box eight out of ten times overhand. And I would practice that in the backyard and come home and take out backlashes uh, at, at lunchtime. And then as I was the same age as you, would ride my bike down in the, in the morning early as the sun was coming up, and I'd fish uh, for pike. I had a handful of, of boons, uh, not real daredevils. We couldn't afford the expensive ones. And I would cast uh, uh, for pike. And 
I remember catching a great big one, like a well, great big one, like 34-inch one. And I couldn't get it on my bike with the net and the (laughs) tackle box and the fishing rod and all that. And I was trying to, you know, ride it home and I'm pushing it up. And the neighbor came and saw that big fish and picked me up and gave me a ride home. An old guy named Fred. And he went down there with me because it was like, holy cow, where'd you catch that thing? uh, (laughs) He showed me how to use a a yellow river run. And uh, we went up above where anybody passed the the fork sticks and passed the end of the path through the, some of the weeds and we went up and fished a couple of corners that I had not fished and um, it kind of opened my eyes that but anyway by the time I was that age that summer I could hit that box eight out of ten times and then my mom stepped in and said hey you got to take it I promise and that's when I learned how to roll I would sit in the middle of the seat propped up in these cushions I could barely see over it my dad pulling the right oar and pushing the left oar. okay good pull on both of them, and then he would cast. And then I'd get to fish when uh, we put the anchor down on a real good spot or something. That's great. And I got, yeah, um, we did that. We fished every single night after work. Uh, the, we had a Grumman Sport boat. It was on the top of the car, station wagon, 59 Ford most of the time. And uh, when I was 11, some guy died that was a guide for a private fly fishing camp that had been around forever uh, on the River. And they asked my dad, oh, help, emergency, Charlie died, Pillsbury's coming. He said, take the kid. You know, he knows the, where the bass are. And he used to let me go. I could, he'd let me go for two, three days camping when I was that age. And I'd go climbing trees and, you know, looking down in the water and catching frogs and throwing them in and doing stuff, you know, like a kid would do. So I had a, really a lot of time on the water. So I get hired uh, for this day for Mr. Pillsbury. And how we caught the out of them, you know. I knew where a lot of them lived cast right there one was going to bite and he thought I was a savant because <laughs> the other guides fish walleyes they don't fish bass you know they were guides but you know it's like for, for the sport and so it was I got a full-time job and um, did it for whew, total of over 20 years oh, and it was, uh, yeah yeah it was, I did it all through high school and college and my wife and I ran the camp for several years as we were you know, going to school and started so you mentioned yeah you mentioned casting into the swing or under the swing set and putting it in a box. So that explains when, whenever I watch your show, I'm just amazed at how awesome you are at casting lures. I mean, you put it right where it needs to be and it looks like every single time. So that explains it. You started at a really young age learning how to drop it right in there. Anything like this, you know, there's certain, it seems kind of cold, but you know, in uh, any of our endeavors, we have sports, Right. Some are organic, like fishing uh, is most of the time, and some are sort of uh, synthetic. It could be hitting a golf ball, throwing a baseball, and, and uh, fishing. Part of it might be casting, but you could say the mechanics of it, being able to do what it is you want to get done. You've got it in your mind, can I make it go there? And uh, it applies to boat control. It applies to you know controlling, controlling your lure. Uh, mechanics is a huge, 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 huge part of... Uh, I think any, almost any of our activities, uh, if you're a hunter, uh, it's about, you know, getting them behind the shoulders every single time. Uh, and then you've got other elements, strategic, the way I look at it, you've got mechanics, which you can control and practice. You've got strategy, which is about where do I do this and how is all the system working and where's my likelihood the highest. And then you have tactics that you combine with the strategy. I'm in this kind of a spot where the tactical uh, options I have at hand and then can I execute the mechanics and then you rub the silver off the lottery card. Hunting or fishing, I think it's pretty much the same. So I was lucky enough to grow up in the uh, Pacific Northwest and my dad was Mm -hmm. an avid steelhead fisherman growing up in 
in middle know. school and high school, we, we spent a lot of afternoons, evenings in the drift boat on the water. And I learned to row, you know, I was 10, 11 <laughs> years old when he, when I was rowing the boat myself, the whole, the whole drift. So dad could be fishing steelhead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I was just, and that's ex- an interesting, if steelheads are really an interesting creature, if you grew up fishing, you know, those are an interesting animal. A couple of different reasons, you know, you've got a, a rivering system, let's say, and in a situation, if we're speaking with almost any other species of fish, you've got a carrying capacity. It's based on the amount of the forage it's built. And as the season changes, you know, things shift around, but you have this finite uh, amount of carrying capacity. Steelhead fishing, these crazy creatures come flying in, and uh, they're not designed uh, or thinking about eating, really. And they come in in higher numbers in terms of their number of fish per square inch in the in the water uh, than any native fish would be, yet they're reluctant to bite, except in some cases where they can be like shark. I have a friend that did a uh, study on the North Umpqua River. Have you guys fished that river? I have, yeah. Okay, and that's a pretty tough river. It's a, you know, uh, a lot of deeper water. And, uh, but it's, you know, uh, it's got a lot of drops, so. big rocks. It's a little more yeah, water folly. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I did a sample of a stomach contents analysis on a hundred and some steelhead. And like a hundred and one of them had nothing in it. And the hundred and second had a water on those birds. <laughs> <laughs> Just, okay, you know. Bird upset it. And, you know. I don't know. Maybe they're fighting <laughs> over one of those orange crayfish. You ever fish those, you know, those bright orange crayfish in the Elko? Put those in front of a steelhead. They slurp them up like a little kid. You Franco-American spaghetti. <laughs> Well, Larry, I've noticed there's a a common thread, whether you're into big game or even photography or fishing, there's guys with their craft that have really honed it and, you know, fine-tuned it to the point where they're very successful. And what would you think would lead, I mean, you kind of gave us three tips of where to work in those regions, but what helps a guy all the way around become, you know, that pinnacle fisherman? Probably something my great-grandpa told me, and that is, uh, believe nothing of what you hear and half of what you see. (laughs) And the, I think those old timers, you know, I, I think about the old time duck hunters that spent time in their garage with basswood whittling duck decoys, right? Hand painting them to mm-hmm. go out and harvest ducks. And now we get to go to a big box store and buy some of the most beautiful de- duck decoys that, I mean, when they're on the water, they sit there and swim and look realistic. And I've stocked up on other people's decoys before thinking they're real ducks. <laughs> some, of them, some of them quack and open their mouth. That's crazy. So, but I mean, the same thing has happened in the fishing lure industry for sure. Of from, I'm sure you've seen it a lot more than I have in my lifetime. From going from just a, a simple met spinner or you know worms to what we have now. Well, that's quite a long ways what you just said because you know there's a whole bunch of different contrivances that I could substitute for a met spinner and have exactly the amount of success that I would have with it. Uh, based on how high it runs in the water column, and how fast I move, you know, based and uh, how fast I move it, yada yada yada. The worm, on the other hand, pretty difficult to beat the worm if it is presented properly. Think about that. That is true. I remember when I was a little kid, you talked about catching sunfish and using a worm. That was I was a bobber and worm kid when I first started. And there's this little lake here close to where we live. And it's got largemouth bass and yellow perch. And now it has bluegill and tiger musky, which has vastly improved the yeah. fishing there. But And it'll remain yeah. unnamed, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. anyway, when I was little, I would wait out, you know, up to my armpits just about. And we would throw a bobber and a worm. And there were, there were guys fishing plastics and, and, 
doing their thing. And what I found was that that bobber and that worm was actually, I had a higher catch rate than a lot of those guys fishing a plastic worm. And I think, of course you did. Yeah. I think part of it was, (laughs) you know, placement of where I, where I put it, I was looking for those, you know, weed edges and different places, beds where the bass were, but I think also it's just you can't beat natural sometimes. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, got the, the fact scent. of the matter. Honestly, the fact of the matter, and I'm a, I'm a Lord designer. If you can present it properly, you can never beat natural. Never. It can't be beat. I've tried. <laughs> um, uh, there are times where you have to modify how you present it to get the most out of it. That is very common, but it is very, 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 very hard. And uh, the reason is that the natural bait, when it is, you have to break it into pieces. Uh, imagine a Venn, you know what a Venn diagram is, where you take a circle and then you make another circle and it overlaps? Yep. One circle is fish that eat each other, and the other uh, circle is fish that eat insects and things that can't swim away quickly. And there are times when, okay, and we let's take trout, for example. Most of the time, they're on that side that eat insects, and then a big brown will get to a point where he shifts over, and uh, he might eat other fish uh, more often than he eats insects unless they become crazily available. On the other hand, we could take a lake trout that often might eat other fish that weigh four pounds for dinner. If uh, insects become widely enough available, I've seen 40-pounders cruising on the surface um, just eating uh, insects like a whale would eat krill. And so very often... Uh, there are two 180-degree triggers when it comes to fish that are focusing on one of these things or another. When it comes to fish that are eating insects, um, very often it requires getting that food form in front of it into a, what I would call a zone of awareness. And it might only be a cubic foot or two, foot three, and it has to enter it in a drag-free drift. And then as it gets close, it might have to go twitch, twitch, just a couple of microseconds, and then go dead. God taps that fish on the shoulder. You'll see his gills flare. The thing goes in, uh, probably a cubic space, four inches square on a trout, and it goes in, and then you'll see his gills flow again, and it goes out. And if he didn't get uh, stung by it, you could do it again, and you might make that same mistake a couple of times in a row. When you get fish on the other side of the diagram, oftentimes what it takes uh, when they're in a, negative slash neutral sort of mood is for that live bait to react to the fact they're there. So it's going along like a lure goes along with a kind of a steady mechanical action. A live bait, if it's presented properly and set up properly, uh, a minnow sees a predator, it goes, oh, and it tries to (laughs) And that random non-mechanical action reacting to the predator is some of the most potent medicine that there is. And that's kind of what the, the world of the the two are and you can there are ways to sort of interesting to watch when it's really cold you might be able to <laughs> like this now you guys walk out on the pond this afternoon and do this <laughs> <laughs> so drill a hole drop something down okay put a minnow on it and a you know hook it up so you're not killing it maybe just a little bit in the dorsal fin and watch and watch a fish go after it and you know it might try to swim away and get in a big circle and take a, a weight and put it uh, 36 inches above it and now he can only spin in a 36-inch circle. And you put it down, now he can only spin in an 18-inch circle, heavy enough way. And you see there are times when uh, reducing the circle size makes the fish bite. There are times when increasing it makes the fish bite. It's real interesting. That's interesting, yeah. And it, 
I'm glad you brought that up because there's one of the things I've learned. We I pursue walleyes a lot, and uh-huh. there are times when I mean you you throw out and I, I like to work suspending uh, crankbaits. Some people call them jerk baits. I don't necessarily call them jerk baits, but you know, like a suspending crankbait, like a X wrap or a a rogue or mm-hmm. something like that, and I'll throw it out. Yeah. And some some nights when I'm fishing. They want it just ripped through the water. I mean, just really hard jerks, and they'll come up and they'll smack it. And mm-hmm. other times, that won't catch you a fish. Sometimes they want a really yep. slow. Stupidly slow, so yeah. slow you can't even make it slow enough. Yep. Yeah, slow retrieve. Sometimes they want it where you do kind of a medium retrieve and then just stop it and yep. let it suspend. And it's just crazy how different day-to-day mm-hmm. is. Because a couple of weeks ago, one night, that night that I, sh- I showed you that picture of with my kids, those fish just wanted a slow, just painfully slow. I hate reeling that slow. But anyway, really slow retrieve. And my, my youngest daughter, she caught a 28-inch walleye on this super slow retrieve with this X-Wrap, which usually when I use an X-Wrap, I'm ripping that thing through the water. But that's what they wanted that day. And it's just crazy how they're just different from night to night. Because the next night that I went, which was only a couple days later, they wanted it ripped through the water. So it's just insane how different fish are day to day on different things. Are you fishing in places where there's any current? Yeah, so that's it's like a kind of like an inlet system where the water's, you know, it's moving, but it's not moving really fast. Yeah, you'll find that the uh, angle that you pick in the current is huge. The distance you cast is huge. And mm-hmm. the place where you allow it to turn the corner is maybe even the hugest. Yeah, so one of the things I noticed was... Do you understand what I'm talking about? I current do. angle, your cast in the current angle, that is absolutely... Oh, absolutely. Well, using your your creation this earlier this year, mm-hmm. I found that, so I was fishing pike in an undisclosed uh, <laughs> river system, and if I was casting upstream and reeling it down with the current, for whatever reason that day, they weren't hitting it. And I, mm-hmm. and I, I was like, okay, that's different. So then I cast downstream, which seems totally weird to a lot of us who fish trout for a lot of times, you know, fly fishing. I cast it downstream and I started ripping it upstream. And boy, you talk about turning on a pike. It was it was awesome. I had this one pike. <laughs> he just exploded on this thing. But yeah, it does. And day to day, it can make a huge difference. So yeah. um, tell me just for everybody's sake, fishing a, a river system something like that because you fish so many of them and you're fishing lures um what what are some things to consider when you're when you're looking at a piece of river you've never fished before well the main thing you know i break it right back down to strategy tactics mechanics first of all what's my strategy going to be i just got here how much gas have i got how much of this is navigable if i go over this border will they shoot at me? <laughs> and so you, you decide how much, what is my range? What is my reasonable range? And, you know, how many days do I have? And so what I would do is run as far as I could run up and down, and I would establish where the, uh, if there are any semi-barriers, natural barriers. But moreover, what I've been looking for is relative changes in vertical drop and sections of river where the speed varies because of those changes in vertical drop. And then I would be just like in a lake looking for where the main basins are, where the stretches are that have the highest carrying capacity. And then in my mind, I would grade them as A, B, C, D kind of spot. And then um, after I've run them like that, I have some idea of the best way to begin approaching them. And I would always work them inside out, shallow to deep in most cases. Unless I got something spotted that's real obvious. And 
Yeah, that's what I do. Well, I want to tell you about, uh, I got to go fish the, uh, we, we went to Africa, Namibia in 2015. My wife and I did. Mm-hmm. We, we went on safari, but I uh, added the fishing trip. Just tiger fish are a, a cool fish. If, if you haven't had, <laughs> yeah. you don't know what they are. You, I know you know what they are, but for our listeners, go Google tiger fish and look the, them up. The best grill on a fish I've ever seen is on a tiger fish. Man, it's, they have some teeth. <laughs> unfortunately, I don't have a picture with a tiger fish, but I had one on and I lost that fish. And so the one that got away, I mean, I'm, there's this fire to, I'm not, I'm not a huge fisherman. I'm, I'm a big game hunter. <laughs> Patrick knows this, but that tiger fish that got away i, I want to go back and fish that river and catch one what river were you on the uh, zambezi or were in the uh, Delta? yeah i was on the on the zambezi i can't remember the name of the outfit we went with we went guided in a pontoon boat we spent the day do you remember what town you put in it we, we were headed we were headed to victoria falls and we stopped okay. over at one of the camps there right on the main road and okay you're the don i know you gotcha yeah they're an amazing animal they're really fast you look at their tails and it looks like a tarpon and I've had some of them that have, when I first went there, they told me you couldn't catch them on lures. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. And we uh, figured it out you know, relatively quickly. I've got here my snap jigging, uh, size five, size six spinners like you use for a uh, salmon. Cast them upstream, let them sink, and just snap them. Snap, snap, snap. Just, you know, not even letting the spinner uh, go. But anyway, I had some jump. I'm not kidding you. They jumped in front of my boat, and then all of a sudden there's one jumping behind the boat. And I'm thinking, that can't be the same fish. Got there too quick. And uh, when we ran in slow motion, you'd see a cavitation trail of bubbles from its tail from where it landed to oh, where it man. came back up. And he was like, how in the hell? Yeah. Yeah, they could bite your finger off. Just snip like that. That's what they do. They're designed to eat fish that are up to two-thirds their own size. What happens is Zambezi jumps up and down like crazy. You know, so you just, for some years, there's no forage. And the tiger fish has evolved to be able to uh, stay ahead of the forage base. So they come flying in and they'll take a bite out of something two-thirds the size that they are, spin around and eat the rest of it. So, yeah, they're really interesting. A lot like Golden Dorado. A lot of there. Well, you just, you just brought up you know, I've been ta- talking to Patrick, and I said, if we were going to go do a fishing trip, Golden Southern Dorado. America, yeah. Golden Dorado, and I think that's from watching some of your adventures yeah. down there. <laughs> so tell me more about Golden Dorado. Well, um, you know, they're found primarily in the Plata Basin, which is adjacent to south of the Amazon Basin. They have a life cycle that run up and down these rivers and uh, spawn in relatively fast water next to another creature, I think it's called a kapuro. And um, they're born, and these poor little kapuro other creatures get born side by side and they start eating them from the minute literally they're they're born and they run up and down these river systems and uh, they'll run up into marshes um, they'll run up rapids on uh, very very aggressive uh, fish biting power uh, I have spoons like we fish lake trout with that look like you shot them with a 22 short where dorados they just come up a quack like wow. that unbelievable if you looked at it you would not you would not believe it if you looked at it but and they, these are, you know, 35, 40 pounders. They get up to, they can be 70 in a couple of areas. Uh, Argentina, Bolivia, certain parts of Brazil, they're pretty well uh, spread out. So as you're traveling the globe going on these fishing trips, are you gearing up and specifically getting your lure set and your, your technical aspect set for one species and one fish? Or do you kind of have a kit that just goes with you anywhere you go? Um, I've usually got, sometimes it'll be, I wonder what lives here type trip. And there you know, when I first started doing it, it was, you know, ridiculous amount of gear. But more, you know, 90% of the time when I've done this, it's, I've had a, an idea what I'm after. And, you know, second time around, I'm more tuned in. Third, 
third time around, uh, very, 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 very tuned in. So I have another question on that. You talk about, and I've heard you talk about this before, but I, I think it's good for our listeners to hear this, is the different phases a fisherman goes through because um, you kind of describe the progression of a of an angler throughout their time if they're really serious about it. So I don't know if you could talk about that a little bit, the, just the phases that people go through. Well, I guess the first phase I would say is I just want to catch a fish. And then the second phase is I want to catch a limit. And then the third phase is I want to catch a big one. And the fourth phase is I want to catch one how I want to catch one. And then there's a there's another phase. It's the phase I'm in. It's kind of interesting. The last few years, I just want to watch somebody else catch one. And I'm happy to share one with them, one of my guys with them. And so what I do is just mostly drive the boat and say, cast right there. <laughs> and I, I really like that. I really do. I had the, uh, like I said, I grew up chasing steelhead with the Pacific Northwest Steelheaders Club. So my dad was a Mm -hmm. member of the club and there was a few older guys in the club that had been there, done that. And I was a young pup in the club. Mm -hmm. You know, I just want to catch a steelhead. And then then it turned into, I just want to catch a limit of steelhead. And then it was, (laughs) no, I just want to catch a really big steelhead. And the guys I was going with, they're on the other end of the spectrum of, hey, I just want to see somebody else Mm -hmm. catch a steelhead. So yeah, there's a, there's a local guy here that I'm really good friends with. And he, he's definitely in that phase where you're at. He's about 78 years old and his favorite thing, bar none, hands down is to take kids, watch him catch a fish. And he's got this, this older Sylvan deep V boat, put it in the reservoir and he'll take people out and put them on, you know, big rainbows, big walleyes. And he just, he gets tickled. He'll he'll send me videos of these kids reeling in these nice walleyes or nice big rainbow trout, and it's just I, I think that's just such a cool thing to think about that progression because I can see that in my own life where I wanted to catch a fish on that bobber and worm, and then it was like, oh, that was cool. Let's catch a limit of these. Let's catch the really big one. And I've definitely changed over time. I'm probably more in that. I don't know. I enjoy the aspects of taking my kids. I think that's really fun and and seeing them. But man, I still love catching that big one. <laughs> well, and we skipped over the catch of one, how I want to catch one. Right. You know, if you're to the steelhead, are you going to use a gob of guts or are you going to use a fly? Or are you going to be, you know, Lee Wolf and do another dry fly? And, you know, that's a whole nother, a whole nother side of it. And one I, and it's one I question a little bit, you know, because there's guys that say, here's what I'm going to do it. And they pick some way that is like one hand tied behind me. That's fine. And they say that's the best way, but they haven't tried any of the other ones. And that always kind of gets me. You know? <laughs> guys tried everything. He wants to go do it however he wants. It's, you know, that's fine. But, you know, the purist um, with his nose in the air, he's never impressed, never taught me much either. Well, I can say I pretty much went through three or four of those stages, four of those stages on one fishing trip. And I'll, I'll even, <laughs> on, on one trip, <laughs> uh, on one trip, we went, uh, we, I'll even give the name of the river. It's the Siletz river in Oregon. It's a, it's a steelhead river primarily, but there's actually smallmouth bass on that river. And we had uh, drift loaded it one day and starting in the morning, I just wanted to catch a fish, right? Cause I had never been smallmouth bass fishing on that river. I'd only gone steelhead fishing. Mm, yeah, when you never know if you're even going to get a fight in it. So we, uh, yeah, that the the, the average uh, the average fisherman fishes forty hours for every steelhead, just so people under understand that the the drive. It's it's mini Golden Dorado fishing. But we went well, on this. Go ahead. Wait, wait, wait. Golden Dorados bite like crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Steelhead okay. don't. And no. and and steelhead refers to the fish and also a state of mind. 
necessary for a steelhead fisherman. I like that. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> pretty, pretty obvious. There's rust on both sides of it. Well, we were, we were throwing jigs this particular day, and we'd, we'd landed, we'd boated at least 60 smallmouth. And I had brought my four-piece takedown fly rod and a mouse pattern I'd tied. And if anybody's ever tied a mouse pattern, takes a lot of deer hair, spinning deer hair and shave it. it. It's a mess and it takes forever to tie one pattern. It's not a, it's not a quick fly to tie, but I, I'd got bored of catching smallmouth on a plastic jig, you know, with the jig head under the surface. So I started pulling that mouse pattern, you know, throwing it right against the bank and pulling it. And now my catch rate wasn't nearly as high as when we were, you know, throwing plastic jigs, but I got a couple smallmouth to break the surface of the water and hammer that mouse pattern. Now that is something, if you've never done that, that is a lot of fun. Absolutely. I was fishing with my dad one time. It was in the, I had a summer. I figured out this lure. It was a thing I could make zigzag back and forth off center, four feet to each side. So it'll go back and forth like eight feet and only come forward maybe a foot. It had a liquid, uh, merc- it had mercury inside of it that was that would just shoot to the back to get get the balance right to get it to zigzag. And then as it slowed down, it's a, was forward and I caught every single muskie we had followed every one of them and I caught like 50 some of them on it this summer, on this summer and it's toward the end of the year my dad's got one following his surface lure and like he had all summer and then I cast this thing out and catch and I said dad just cranking in quick take my rod throw this bait out and catch the damn thing so you'll have a fish for the summer he just kept cranking and looked at me and said it, it won't bite my lure the son of a bitch can starve. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to catch it his way. <laughs> as simple as that. You know, for me, one of the things I really enjoy doing, and sometimes I probably don't catch as many fish as I do like to catch them on top water. David's the same way. There's Absolutely. Just, there's something about watching that fish come blowing up out of the water or seeing that V, that weight coming behind your lure. It's like, holy crap, holy crap, here it comes. Well, it's just it's something simple. about it's all it. of your senses. Think about it. You've got a worm on uh, and you're holding it. It goes boom, boom. It's tactile. You put a bobber with it, and, well, I saw the bobber go down, but it's not that exciting. You've got a topwater lure. You're watching it, and every single one of your senses is involved. You can hear it. You can see it. feel it. You can anticipate. That's it. Yep. And one of the biggest mistakes I learned early on is when you see that fish blow up on your bait, you got to wait until you feel them before you set the hook. I, I pulled a few topwaters out of tiger muskie's mouths because I didn't wait long enough for him to actually chomp down on it. I could see him coming, and I got so excited that I ripped the lure out of their, out of their mouth, you know. And but yeah, topwater is just—it's the ultimate for me in adrenaline fishing. Uh, and I've watched you do it on yeah. so many shows for so many things. So it's like hunting. It, it's much more like hunting, right? Yep. You're saying, you're saying, all of a sudden, here comes this creature, and that begins. And it's then you and this creature. And so it's a, you know, it is a lot like that. And also there's something called, I call it puckering. Uh, there's an invisible string that goes from the top of your head, and it goes right down your spine and goes all the way around your anal and down into your, your uh, reproductive organs. And when you get real excited, uh, it gets tight. Your neck gets shorter. Your butt closes up. You're like this. <laughs> and uh, it's, called, it's called puckering, like when a grouse jumps up real quick. And if you control the pucker and use that to get your gun up and shoot, 
you get what you don't, you don't. Same with a topwater strike. We, when I was growing up, we had a pucker factor on a scale of one to 10. I think it's the you same thing it. you're talking about. <laughs> you got it. That's it. Exactly. Well, we pulled a yeah, lot of quick time. fish chasing steelhead when I was a kid, right? And Oh, that's super effective. Yeah, that's a territorial thing. It's super effective. It's also super boring, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, one of my favorite things to do is that because it's super effective fishing, and you in Oregon on steelhead, it's one rod per fisherman. So if there's two of us in the boat, we can have two plugs working either side of the boat, and we can kind of work down through the holes and usually agitate the fish enough to get them to strike. But you don't yep. get to see it. You don't get to hold the rod. You just sit there, and you're a passenger. So I would always mm-hmm. have a fly rod and a spinning rod, and I'd love to flow a, throw a blue fox over in a couple little channels. And that, that was two, two of my favorite steelhead was yeah. one was a number three blue fox come out of the deep water. And I could see my spinner about 50 yards out there in front of me. You know, we're, we had a gravel bar basically kind of between us, but it was two or three inches of water. And then mm-hmm. there was a seam right against the bank of like five foot deep water. Yep. I saw him coming from five feet away to strike that thing. Oh yeah. And the other one was we're sitting anchored up, plugging into a hole, and I got bored and I reeled mine in. I got my fly rod out and I just started throwing a woolly bugger, a number, Mm -hmm. no, I don't remember, a smaller woolly bugger, just to catch a few rainbow trout that are in that same stream. I had a a medium-sized steelhead come up and strike that woolly bugger on my four-weight fly rod for trout, (laughs) and it was a a 24-inch steelhead. It wasn't a big steelhead. But it oh, yeah. kicked my butt. It was more fun. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about your TV show, just kind of how you got into that. It's it's a show that's inspired thousands of people to, to fish and to travel and, and, and fish places they would have never ever fished. So how did you how did you get involved in the TV show side of fishing? I mean, you talked a little bit about how you got started in guiding, but how did you get into the TV show side? Well, um, well, I was working as a guide. I got a phone call from... Uh, I think it was Spencer Petros. He's a guy that worked with a Fishing Facts magazine. Mm-hmm. And he was filming with uh, Roland Martin somewhere in northern Wisconsin. And they'd been up here for a couple of weeks, and they had not shot a foot of footage. They were actually trying to get steelhead even in the brule. I think he had a bite at midnight or something, and they didn't get any footage. So they were really taking the blue. And at that time, um, I was a factory rep. I had gotten out of college, actually, uh, as a, was a major in uh, English, creative writing, and a uh, minor in uh, politics. Some of the guys I guided were kind of heavyweights, the presidents of 3M, like three generations, the head of Pillsbury, the head of Minnesota Mutual, the international head for uh, General Electric, a uh, bunch of really, you know, heavyweight people. And they wanted me to kind of like get into politics and go to law school. So Vietnam, and so I came along, I lost my best friend over there. And I decided uh, I'm going to go a different direction. And uh, 3M had just purchased Scientific Anglers Company, the, the uh, flyer company. And um, uh, there was a hiring freeze on him, and Jimmy Carter was president. And so the guy said, well, you know, we want to hire you for sure, but maybe you should get go get some retail experience. We can't hire you now. So I went to work for a retail store. Took the owner's fishing, and uh, they made me the buyer. We developed a very successful uh, business there. And then uh, one day I decided it wasn't for me, but I couldn't stand it living in the city. So uh, we're going to sell this fly fishing camp that had been around. And uh, I called the guy, said, if Mel and I come back and run it, uh, I would like to start a rep business. I said, okay, yeah, keep it open. We'll build on, we'll do whatever. So we did that. I got to start. So I was doing that, and I get a call from Spencer. 
will you take rolling fishing? Is there anything going on? Go musky fishing. I haven't been for a week. The water's 50 degrees. It's exactly time. Yeah. So he came up. We uh, <laughs> set the boat. He like, what, about 200 yards above where I knew there was a, a fish or two for sure. So he got to get loose depths are fishing in it, you know, and then I, I dropped my anchor and uh, got ready to roll. And cameraman's with me. And I said, hey, guys, come on over here. Uh, this cast right over here. We'll get one. He just says, yeah, I kind of like the way it looks over here. And back when I was that age, I had a like a really, well, my fuse was really hard to light. But if, if you got it lit, it was pretty short. <laughs> and that, that, that would light my fuse because I just ran a whole bunch of water uh, where there's, you know, good options. And went to a place where I know if you want to catch one, here's where you're going to catch one. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, so I turned to Eddie and I said, Eddie, do you want to get a picture of a, you know, shoot a musty being caught? He said, what? You know, he's been, you got to realize he's been up here for two weeks. He hasn't taken out the camera. And he's got a cooler that says uh, Fred on it, F-R-E-D. And I asked him, what, I'll take out Fred. What's Fred? What's effing uh, electronic, yeah, effing ridiculous electronic device. That was what he named the cameras when video cameras first came out. <laughs> and uh, uh, he gets it out, and I hook on this thing. He's just been uh, worked on a lure called the Reef Hog. That was a reptoid. It was a variation of a, of a zigzag type bait. And just, just we just a bit got it, you know, out. Selling it. And I tie in a Reef Hog and I cast this upstream angle. It lands. I make three pumps and 44, 45-inch muskie eats it. And we get it on camera. And now these guys come over and tie their boat up. And they're kind of excited about it. And they want to put it live. Well, we do. They tell them while that fish was at the top head, there's going to be one, maybe two more. It should be right there, you know, ranked just perfect for it. Cast there, and they're throwing a bunch of stuff that I told them not to use. They're moving it way, way, way too fast. And I looked at Eddie, and you know, I made a cast, and made a cast, and working it downhill uh, at the right speed. And I see a flash behind it, and I pop my lure out of the water. And there's one right there in front of the boat. Cast, do what I said. You get them, and they looked at me, and they did not believe me. They didn't believe me. And so, you know, I told Eddie, turn the camera. I make the cast and twirl, catch this fish, like 15 feet in front of the boat. And it rolls up on the surface, and I see a flash. And I'm hauling it rolling, cast to my fish. Cast, 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 cast. By now, he's put on the small refog that I had given him in the first place. Because now he's a believer. Roland catches on quicker than the other guy did. And Roland makes a cast, and quang, we've got a double. His is about three feet long, and it gets off at the back end of the boat. And the one I've got is about like the first one. We bring it aboard and take the first one and hook it on whatever it was the first fisherman was using. And does a kind of a fake landing scene. And then uh, <laughs> they decide we've got enough footage, let's go home. And I've got 15 miles of river to fish and another 10 that I'm going to catch. And I just want to go home, so we do that was my first uh, uh, TV uh, stuff. And then uh, Al Linder gave, talked to those guys, and he gave me a call. And I came over, and he came over and fished with me. And we worked out a deal where I'd write for his magazine uh, about fly fishing for warm water species. It was kind of an exclusive thing. Couldn't write for other magazines. And then we did a couple TV pieces, and then they offered me a job to actually produce the TV shows and, and do that stuff. And, you know, English background, the great writing background. It's pretty easy to you know, put a story together. And I did that for several years, and then uh, the professional wildlife trail came along and became a pretty big focus of what they're doing. And uh, I had a lot of curiosity about the rest of the world. Pretty much been through most of the species available and uh, different types of 
systems that we have. But anyway, I decided to leave the in fishermen and uh, go off and hunt for big fish to see, see what the rest of the world was about and to explore some of the uh, environments. Uh, that I had not been able to experience. And then all of a sudden, 20 years went by in 80-odd uh, countries, and here I am at home, happy as can be. Um, I like it here a lot. I'm like Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz, you know, where at the end where she's clicking her heel. <laughs> there, there's no place like home. So what was your what, one of your most memorable TV episode trip species, that, that just one that comes to mind? I'm sure they're all memorable, but what, what was your favorite one? Well, they're all memorable kind of in different ways. We had a trip to West Africa where I had never fished marlin, and I was really excited to fish blue marlin. And we go over there. I worked out for like eight months before we went over there with a, a weight, 12-pound weight, cranking it with my uh, right hand just so I could keep reeling. And then uh, <laughs> I was just like, it was ridiculous. And we went over there and uh, fished for six, seven days and caught a bunch of great big marlin, and then they had a military revolution. We're going to leave, and sorry, the country's closed because, you know, president's being held hostage by you know blah blah so we went back and uh i caught a marlin that was estimated at 1300 pounds on stand-up that was just the most incredible fight you can it's just ridiculous it was like something out of the and my cameraman had been uh, up a little bit too late the night before because we you know we were, thought we were leaving and everything and he missed almost all of it i've got a few of them that got missed we had, had one another one that had a peacock bass that had to weigh 35 pounds that I had chasing a diver right at my feet. I located it the day before, and I was out of the boat on a sandbar. And the camera's right behind me, and this thing ate like 15 feet in front of me, and it was like the biggest peacock I had ever seen in my life. He double-clicked on the camera and missed, missed all of it. And then the thing ended up actually wearing off 60-pound test hard bottle, you know, on his teeth, so I never used 60 anymore. Holy cow. Yeah, that's what I <laughs> Well, I, I'm not into filming much, but I did, uh, we, we had a wonderful day. I lived in Alaska and we did a, quite a bit of fishing on the Kenai River for a few years. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. most of the time I lived there, King Salmon was closed. Uh, you know, that fishery's for some reason having struggle. But one of the years we were up there, we had just a bumper crop, great year of Kings come in and I took everybody I knew and we, we filled that boat up for two days in a row right at high tide mm-hmm. and was just, just hammering the Kings. So finally, it was my turn. Got a king on one of the passengers in the boat. I had my cell phone too, and I hand the net to my wife. <laughs> and I mean, I've got a it's it's a forty five fifty inch king, you know, in in the forty pound range, maybe a little bigger. Yeah, it's yum three, yum. Three quarters of the way in the net, all the wife had to do was lift up, and she's got the net upside down. You know how the net has a lip that kind of yeah yeah, yeah 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 yeah. Well, the fish <laughs> flops left, the fish flops right. The treble hook gets caught in the net, and the fish flops back in the water and swims away. And I, I land in the bottom of the boat. There might have been a tear or two. <laughs> you still married? We are still married, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's awesome. It, every time you tell that story, I can just imagine the, the pain and the heartbreak. <laughs> it's on film. I, I haven't shared it much because it's hard for me to watch every time. Uh, oh, Well, my, my memory of, with my wife, it was more of a hunting Thing. I mean, she's fished with me in a lot of different places, and there's been a number of humorous uh, experiences. But she was getting, you know, hand thrower clay pigeon deals, you know, that you cock mm-hmm. them and then you got to throw them. 
Yep. So she's behind me, and she was going to give that thing a throw. And let me tell you, it's the hardest I've ever been hit in my life. <laughs> I went down, <laughs> down flat on the ground. I was seeing stars and tweets, and I was unconscious for probably Oof. 15 or 20 seconds. Did, did you have a shotgun in your hand getting ready to shoot the pigeon? I was, yeah. That's what, <laughs> okay, pull, pull, you know, bam. Uh, I didn't even know what happened. Okay, so I have a question. Yeah. Was it intentional or not intentional? <laughs> I, I, to this day, I have no idea. I mean, of course she wouldn't admit it. That's uh, brilliant. Brilliant. That's brilliant. awesome. Yeah. So I've, I've always wanted to ask you this question. Like I said, I saw you at ICAST a number of years ago, and I always wanted to ask you this, so I have to ask this question. Um, of all the fish that you caught in salt water and in fresh water, so two different categories, what was the hardest fighting fish you've ever tangled with in fresh water and in salt water? In fresh water, no question. Uh, uh, I, we were in Suriname. The river, river called the Quarantine, border Suriname and uh, uh, Guyana. And uh, the Surinamese fish all these little creeks and so on. It does a big giant river. It sees our Let's go up this river below the big giant waterfall and see what's there. It should be a big cat. So we went up there uh, 250 miles. It was like two and a half days running. You guys have never been up there. We hooked a catfish that was uh, eight and a half feet long that uh, three of us couldn't lift it. And I remember lifting all of a sudden, my arm disappeared and I went, my hand went up into its actual bug hole all the way up to my elbow. It was the grossest thing also. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that and I had a I was running a Torsa reel with a I didn't have a stand up rig because I was afraid to use it there because if you get pulled out it would be you're dead it's real yeah. deep water like 100, 120 feet some of these pools that's real fast and I had a 130 pound line on it. I had the drag set so tight that even not even you couldn't pull line off <laughs> the, the reel and I'm pulling on this thing and there's line flipping I'm thinking something's wrong with, with a reel and it spun a boat it was. 26 feet long, it spun it right around in current, you know, started heading upstream. And the thing almost killed me, my heart rate. I thought I was going to die, and I've never had that happen before, where it's like, man, I don't want another one right away, anyhow. <laughs> and that, that was that was for sure a hardest freshwater fight. And what, what kind of catfish minutes. was that? Um, it was called a laulau. It's the largest cat. It's large enough if I took the freshwater catfish records, this fish would be large enough to eat the world record uh, channel fish, catfish and uh, flathead in Holy one meal. Cow. Yeah, imagine that. I mean, it's as big as an oil barrel, maybe a little bigger, and eight and a half feet long. It isn't like those European cats, you know, that are all tail. It's just, right. They're just beasts, just amazing creatures. And as far as the saltwater, for sure, these, uh, that 1,300-pound marlin. I popped a hernia over that. Really? Straight under the boat, and the boat kind of bumped a little. I felt this kind of a funny deal. Duked a little black stuff, and still got a little high hernia from it. Oh, man. Running, you know, 60 pounds of drag straight off the reel. You can... Yeah, I was I was wondering about that because I've seen you catch the, the bluefin and a few other things on your show, and so I was curious what was the the hardest fighting fish because every fisherman always wants to catch that really hard fighting big fish. So I was curious what you put in the in your top. So now yeah, I know. You know, because you know a lot of when you say hard fighting, the ones I think about are the painful ones. You know, there's others where you have to run them around with them. You know, and they're trying to go here and go there. Some fish bite like a well, like for example. Uh, Let's say a bass. If I had a dog in the house, in most cases, and I went chasing with a stick, 
he'd go run into a corner or go underneath something, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's fish like steelhead. It's more like a let a bird loose in your house. Chasing around with a tennis racket. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's different different uh, types of deal. Yeah, silvers almost always come out of the water two times. Yeah. King yeah. salmon, bottom of the river, and downstream. They, they're going to find the deepest hole, and they're going to strip line. Yeah. Well, and a lot depends on how hard you pull in the first place. That's always fun. There's a lot of fish around that are just seeing, up, seeing what they do when you pull really, really hard. I mean, like, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it really changes it. Well, sometimes dry fly fishing, I get so excited setting the hook. <laughs> I rip the whole fish right out of the water. Yeah. Some of these small trout here in Wyoming is just like, whoop, oh, there they go. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to talk about, if you have a minute, um, I I don't know. This, is, this has always been something that I've enjoyed from your show uh, your YouTube channel, your website, you, you do a lot of lure making and design. And so what really got you into tinkering around and, and making all of these innovations? Uh, what what was it that spurred that along? Uh, probably just my dad always made. Every, where I grew up, everybody made their own stuff, made their own boats, everything. And as a little kid, I would have seen him take a little bend bend the lips, see what it does, do this, do that. So I just instinctively, I always got some of the monkeys around with stuff. And then, you know, you tied flies, you know, the little sunfish flies. I mentioned fly fishing for sunfish earlier. Uh, you know, it's a little piece of chenille and a little bit of red uh, marabou, and that's about it. And made flies with my dad. Getting back to, you know, goes back to that again uh, when I was five, six, seven years old. And so, you know, and then especially fishing muskies. Uh, these muskies are really casual guys maybe know kind of strange creatures they get smart fast and uh, doing just little variations of things uh, oftentimes uh, make the difference between catching them and not so i guess all my fishing career i always uh monkeyed around with uh stuff like that with lures. yeah and you've you've made a number of different awesome lures and i want you to talk a little bit about mr wiggly i, I mentioned that earlier and a lot of people don't understand what that is but just kind of explain what mr wiggly is and and kind of what you use it for and and kind of how it works oh i was talking about random mechanical action before and uh opposed to mechanical action and what wiggly is is a piece of rubber that is of a given stiffness and it's stiff enough or soft enough so that if you crank it really fast, it'll get flopped like a kind of like a flag at the back end of it. But it's stiff enough that as it's bending, when it gets fully bent, it stores energy. And so if you stop it just dead, it goes kind of zooms off to the side and just kind of hangs there. And you can twitch, twitch, and the edge, you twitch it sideways, you it bends a little bit, and you go and get it slack and kind of jumps around so it has this really insane non-mechanical action that uh, if you can if you've got a fish coming after and you can read the fish uh, you can really uh, trigger them and then uh, pass long ways doesn't uh, pull hard with really and uh, stripers out of it uh, muskies anything that eats other fish actually and a single hook in it that slides so the fish gets hooked and the a slides up the line he's a he's really a good one Mr. Wiggly yeah I 
the first time I saw you use that, you were fishing in Tennessee and you were down below uh-huh. some dam and you were throwing it. And I was just sitting there. Ser- seriously, my mouth was gaping open as you're catching these stripers. I was just like, oh man, what I would love to just be there right now. <laughs> well, what was weird, we had a guy, we'd fish musky and I had some of them with, and then we were going to fish stripers and we had a guy that we were with at, uh, Went all oh, this trouble and two. I uh, had somebody had that drive two hours over the hill to get a bunch of live rainbow trout so we'd catch stripers for sure. And we got below the dam, put out these trout. We weren't catching anything. And uh, I put on a wiggly and just started firing it out into the fast water and start catching on everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. We didn't catch anything on the trout. A couple of them kind of got rushed away. You know, the trout swam fast away from something, but none of them ever got bit. Fine, we just cranked them in and just threw wiggles. But yeah, that was really fun. Had the same thing happen out in uh, Cape Cod. I was fishing with Patrick Seville for uh, stripers, and same thing happened. We got into schools. I was met a bite. They quit biting. They put on a wiggly, fired out there, burn it, stop it, burn it, and every cast. It's ridiculous. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so Larry, I. Uh... I, I tell Patrick this all the time, but the, the reason I go to Alaska almost every year is just for the halibut. Uh, yeah, they're so good. So oh, And they'll so, pull. They'll pull. They'll give you a pull. Oh, when, when you're when you're fishing for halibut, you know, it's it it's not a it's not a fun fishery, right? It's it's basically cranking up a battery from the from the bottom. <laughs> but every once in a while you'll get a battery that strips all the line and goes back down the bottom again, then you have fun. So yeah. my question for you, Larry, is, you know, if, if I had to pick one fish to eat, it would be halibut. If I had to pick one fish to just go chase and catch, I really love catching those those king salmon. They're, you tie into one of those and you, you've done something. They, mm-hmm. they pull back. So what's your favorite fish to catch and what's your favorite fish to eat? I think I'd have to say to catch would have to be tarpon because... They use every single environment. You can catch them on flies. You can catch them on lures. You can catch them on live bait. You can catch them on everything. And so, yeah, probably tarpon. And if I got to pick the environment, they'd be in it. It'd be some sort of an estuary thing. As far as eating, boy, I'll tell you, I really, really like tuna, uh, fresh tuna a lot. The white-meated fish would be it's, it'd be a kind of a toss-up between uh, Nile perch, snook, and halibut. Somewhat similar. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's kind of a hard question. You're starting to make my mouth water talking about that, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I took a trip uh, to Hawaii once, and we we got into the yellowfin and the mahi mahi. It was kind of funny. We we had a house rented. We were there for a wedding, and of course, I had to go fishing because that's what I do everywhere I go. But there was a grill at this house, so we brought back the the mahi mahi and uh, grilled that. And we put it on a plate and we kind of set it off to the side of the grill. And then we start grilling uh, yellowfin tuna steaks that were about an inch thick. Next thing I know, I turn to the left and almost all the mahi-mahi is gone. And <laughs> and what had happened is all the, all the women in the house had came over and they were like, man, that smells really good. And they ate almost all of our mahi-mahi. <laughs> I was so bummed. I got a little bit, but... I think of all the fresh or the saltwater fish that I've ever caught, uh, that mahi mahi was really, really good on the grill. And then my wife and I went to uh, Costa Rica and we caught some littler tuna. They called them black and white tuna. Mm. And man, those were really, really good too. And I, David and I both like to eat the halibut. That's a, uh, especially those halibut cheeks. Those are pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. Hey, the, the young, the, the little chickens are good. Mm hmm. 
Yes, they are. I had a lot of fun catching those things. I made some. Uh, you know what a beetle spin is? Yes, yes. Those. It's like a little spinner bait. Mm-hmm. I took some uh, jig hits that were 16, 24, uh, 32 ounces. And then I used a wire like big as coat hanger wire, only stiffer. And made these great big beetle spins and put uh, soft plastics on them and used them for halibut and oh. just cr- crushed them. Really? Crushed That's, that's interesting. It was so effective, you can't even believe how effective it was. Well, that sounds like more fun than just dropping down a, you know, a piece oh, of oh, meat. Oh, it's way more fun. You can feel it buzzing. <laughs> and, and when people are quitting, when the current is picking back up, start slip drifting and finding little knobs and stuff, and you buzz your old beetler on there, and those halibut, we're catching it. Catch caught really a lot of them. It was really, really fun. Also, some real big lingcots. Ah. So right around some of those pinnacles in when the water's been a little clearer, I've seen as many as 10 or 12 chickens following one lure up off the bottom. Mm, absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, you reel it up and then drop it down, and it goes, thanks, you know, with a nice spinner. You know how they think, and it looked real good, and they real positive hookups. The plastic on the back, and then maybe a little strip of meat of some kind just to give them some scent. One of the most interesting things, we were, you know, running a bigger plastic jig, jerking you know jigging sea bass and and halibut and lingcod and i i hooked into about a 30 inch lingcod i mean the jig was in his mouth but he had got a half hitch around the middle of him on the way up i don't know how that had happened right but (laughs) you fighting and whatever was interesting we're we're on about a 30 30 foot boat out there in the ocean and i was off the front and i'm reeling up this 30 inch you know lingcod and it was fighting really funny because he was lassoed I'm not joking, mm-hmm. Patrick, something's, about... Something's going to eat him. Something's going to eat that guy. <laughs> about eight feet under the water, here comes another... I mean, mine was 30-inch. Lingcod, yes. Another lingcod. Yes. 60-inch lingcod swam yeah. up and yeah. bit... I mean, swallowed the whole head of this one. <laughs> and shook him. Yeah. Blood came out. He couldn't get him, and he swam away. I mean, it was... Yeah. So, it was a 30-inch lingcod, <laughs> right, is a He's nice bait. fish. He's bait. He was baited there. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I wish I had that. You were describing it, I could see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one of the other things that I really want to pick your brain about because this is kind of the crux of the show is that David and I are very passionate about the future of fishing and hunting. You know, you've been doing it ever since you were four years old, just a, just a little guy. What advice would you give to our listeners about being a, a good fishing and hunting mentor um, and teacher? And what are some tips and suggestions that you would pass along? I think probably it's going to stick. Um, consistency would be the word that comes to my mind. And that means fish often as you, as you can. I mean, imagine, uh, I think myself as a little kid, if I only had gotten to fish on the weekends, it would have killed me. That's only like eight days a month. That's, that'd be torture. So, <laughs> So, you know, consistency, I think, as often as you can. And then rather than jumping around, where are they biting, where are they biting, find a place that you can make your own that's maybe off the path of where other people are and learn it. And you can take that anywhere else you go. Right. That's good advice. I I try to get my kids out as much as I can, and and David does as well with the hunting. And one thing I've noticed about my kids is that they love to go, one. They look forward to it. They're always interested in trying something new. Like I started them off with bait fishing because it was, Mm -hmm. you know, just made sense. They weren't really able at at the beginning to cast and and do that. But now that they're And catching the bait. Catching the bait, too. 
That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now that they're getting bigger oh and i gotta tell you about catching night crawlers they love that too but um (laughs) they uh like my oldest daughter she's 11 and she caught a 26 inch walleye the other day and just it was so cool to watch because i kind of see her silhouette as as the sun's starting to come up when we're fishing early Mm -hmm. in the morning she's she's standing Mm -hmm. over on a rocky point or or wherever she's at and she's casting and she's working this bait and i'm just like man that is so cool that's my kid Mm -hmm. and she's Mm -hmm. She's been casting, um, she, her first fishing rod was a Mickey Mouse fishing rod with a little plastic fish and she would go into our basement and she would just, you know, with that little spin cast, she would just cast in our basement and to see her grow and change is just such a cool thing. Um, and so you talked about catching bait. One of the, one of our favorite activities in the summer is to water the water the yard and the garden, take the kids out with flashlights and headlamps and go catch our own night crawlers. Amen. Amen. It's so fun. One other thing David wanted to touch on, and so I have a note here to talk about is he's he's big into knots and, and, and the importance of knots. And I think a lot of fishermen sometimes forget that there are a lot of different kinds of knots that you should probably use in different situations. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of knots in fishing? Well, you know, obviously, you don't want your line to break, and you need to tie knots that maximizes whatever the line. There are so many fishing knots; it's uh, pretty confusing. But uh, there's a family of knots that's uh, known as a uni, and a uni knot really is uh, the same. You can also look up nail knot in a, where we used to tie the fly uh, leader onto a fly line. That's the probably the most reliable family uh, of knots. If a person was going to simplify their life that would be the family to learn because it can be used to join two lines together to use to make a loop and uh, it consistently tests out higher than any of the other knots that i've tested up my own machine how's that yeah that was good i remember when i was a kid i didn't really know any knots and boy i lost lost fish because i i didn't know how to tie a proper knot and then i had some people show me and i was like oh well that makes a lot more sense <laughs> you know <laughs> if you yep. can't tie knots patrick tie lots yeah <laughs> sometimes that works sometimes not but no i i think that's great and i i really appreciate your insight there and again larry it's been wonderful having you on the show i have a just a lot of respect for everything you've done and i'm really grateful for inspiring you know, you've inspired me and a number of my friends that grew up watching your show. And, and, uh, so I just want to thank you on behalf of everybody that I know that's going to listen to this, uh, for everything. So thank you so much. And I'll send you a picture of a golden Dorado next summer. Yeah. (laughs) So Dave and I are hoping when this COVID stuff gets under control that we can, we can go catch the golden Dorado. So when we get one, we'll have to send you a picture. I do that for sure. Where the video. Yeah. And and make sure the camera's running. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What country would you say would be the best one to go pursue one of those? Um, Paraguay, Uruguay, uh, border is really good. Otherwise, uh, uh, Bolivia is a, is a really good place where it's a little more rugged. But when you, if you decide to go there, drop me a note and I'll hook you up with my friend that, uh, spends quite a bit of time there. That sounds awesome. Well, we appreciate that. And again, Thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been definitely a pleasure for me. I, I just, I love your show. So um, one question is, if someone wanted to get a hold of like a DVD collection or, you know, some of your materials, um, where do they go to find that, that information? Probably the best place to be uh, 
there's a website, uh, makelure.com, where we have all the lure making stuff and everything. Yeah, the DVDs and all the lure making stuff that we do, I think, is all handled on that website. So Okay, cool. And so he has a little bit of everything on that website. There's some really great video tutorials. So definitely go check that out um, and start making your own because that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, and then for, for everybody, again, if you like the show, uh, it really helps us out. If you like and subscribe, please go to ragcastoutdoors.com. We'll have show notes and we'll link to makelure.com and to other uh, like his YouTube stuff that he has as well so you can watch some of that and uh yeah definitely go check out our website and uh we will be back here soon with another show larry thanks for your time today hi you bet my pleasure uh good luck in the future you guys stay cool. safe thanks larry so patrick you know sitting here getting to wrap this show up another episode of radcast outdoors just want to touch base on uh you know i've got two favorite films out there what's that we've got uh a River Runs Through It. Have you ever seen this film? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. It's, it's on my annual viewing list, and it's it's <laughs> it's tied with Jeremiah Johnson. Those are some good ones. It's pretty pretty good ones. And in both films, they catch fish. Which is important. you got to catch the fish. <laughs> so, we're enjoying this, having fun with this, this podcast and thing. We just got done with Larry Dahlberg, and that was... That was kind of cool. That was really cool. I, th- I think we need to get out and do some fishing now. Yes. we. Well, now that you're done hunting, maybe you can come fishing with me and catch some of these big ones like well, I've been catching. Well, hold on. Done hunting? What, I mean, Well, you're, you're in a momentary pause while you process <laughs> meat. <laughs> I, I mean, is, is a guy ever really done? No. You're never done hunting or fishing if you truly love it. So Yeah. So, no, we definitely can, we can get a, a fishing trip in and we got to get a... Get a few more episodes in the bank. We've got some cool stuff coming. But in the meantime, for our listeners, what what can they be doing? So one of the best things you can do if you like this show a lot is go to ragcastoutdoors.com. Check out our episodes, you know, leave comments. But wherever you get your podcasts, like let's say you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, go out there and give us a rating. That is huge for us. Download the episodes. That's huge. We just looked the other day and you know there's very few states that this show is not listened to. So I want to say thank you to everybody for that. There's uh, starting to become a pretty good following of Radcast Outdoors, which is really cool. But we definitely need your help. Um, that's that's what we need more from anybody than anything is just get out there, rate us, subscribe to us. Also, we have an awesome Facebook page. You can go there. You can like and follow there. And then also our Instagram account. So that's Radcast Outdoors Podcast. Well, awesome. That's, that's a lot of places people can go check out more content from Radcast. We're coming up with new stuff all the time where Patrick and I are kind of a little bit of busy guys, but we're, we're scheming on more things to do and we got some cool guests coming. So yep. stay tuned for more Radcast Outdoors. <laughs>